You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Edward Tufte is a statistician and artist and professor emeritus of political science, statistics, and computer science at Yale University. He wrote, designed, and self-published Beautiful Evidence, the visual display of quantitative information, envisioning information, and visual explanations. His other books include Political Control of the Economy, Data Analysis for Politics and Policy, and with Robert A. Dahl, Size and Democracy. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Tufte. Good, thank you. Let's start with the first part of visual explanations where you talk about the dimensions of storytelling. Talk about two, three, and multivariate dimensions when you're trying to tell a story using visual and words in a single image. Um, To begin with, uh, there are ambiguities in the word story, and we need to separate uh, fiction and nonfiction. In, uh, I do mainly nonfiction, and so you have to uh, stay close to the empirical observed world, and it has to have some credibility, some truth value, and so the the range of conventions for nonfiction stories is a lot narrower than the. Than if, than if you make the stuff up. In nonfiction, you can't make the stuff up. And that's a big constraint. It it's is. a constraint on, on both uh, that you're constrained by, by reality and by, by facts. I sometimes go off into uh, complex stories uh, as when I illustrate the, uh, the quote uh, from uh, Haroon in the Sea of Stories from Salman Rushdie's book mm-hmm. at the end of Visual Explanations. And that drifts off between his fantasy and then how I illustrated it. But my world is largely uh, an empirical one. Narr- and think of, of non I think mainly about nonfiction narratives. So the, the dimensions of the story are whatever it ta- of a nonfiction story or whatever it takes to explain something and it may take and it probably will any complicated thing will take many methods of explanation and so you need sentences and you need graphical sentences two-dimensional sentences uh, pictures images videos sock puppets maps charts so there's a uh, the, the tighter methods, the closer methods of display are wide open in nonfiction, but it's always constrained by the empirical reality. Uh, one of the things I thought that was really interesting was what you suggested when you're using animation. The shadows of animation are what show the jump. And I think that that's an important un, uh, concept to, to wrap your brain around in terms of how the story is told, not necessarily by its elements, but by reflections of the elements, by um, other data that might be uh, adjacent to the elements? Yeah, that's a property of anything that resides in three space, 
So sculptures are artwork that cast shadows, or if you're constructing an animation of a thunderstorm, as I did in, in visual explanations, uh, the way you get it off the ground to the, uh, to the viewer is by putting a shadow underneath the cloud that moves on the ground, as well as the cloud itself. So, uh, and, and that's for a century and maybe even longer in, in animation of anything. Uh, that's called the animation shadow. And it's quite a delight once you learn about that and see that technique uh, used as that two-dimensional projection of the three-dimensional object on perhaps any surface nearby. Uh, in my sculpture work uh, of stainless steel Feynman diagrams, I pull them uh, uh, about maybe 10 centimeters off the wall and the point is then that the diagrams, which are in an interesting two space, those diagrams then cast shadows on the wall and that in turn depends on the number of light sources. So you can get multiple shadows and also different colors depending on the light bulbs or whether it's the sun. And it resulted for me in things I could have never possibly constructed myself, those shadows. They were too complex and too beautiful and too you know, precisely emulating the, the, the sculpture. And the nice thing about it is those shadows were all for free. I didn't have to paint an animation shadow. I let the light, the sunlight or the uh, uh, lights in the gallery, uh, paint those shadows for me. And then we would fine tune them by adjusting, adjusting the light and designing them with the shadows. But to actually created those things would have been you know, impossible. So that's why I, I love that, that, that the shadows came for free. <laughs> I really like that idea. Um, you know, it strikes me, too, that uh, one of the, the notes I took was that you can fictionalize what you purport to be factual information just by showing a distorted presentation as opposed to carefully sculpting it. And I'm thinking of, say, for example, a graph where you've got what looks like a giant mountain in the middle of that graph. And this is a graph, say, of the number of murders in the city, right? And there's, and, and on Halloween, it looks like there's just this giant jump. But what you don't realize about the graph is that what looks like a mountain in miniature is actually a dimple in the data because they've cut off the bottom, say, three quarters of the presentation. So when you were you to step back, it's just this little thing. So talk about, um, how you avoid that. And you get to that a bit in your chapter on magic. By inverting mag the principles of magic, I thought was a really, that's a, a really interesting approach. I've, uh, about uh, 10 years ago, gave up the war against stupidity, <laughs> particularly in graphics and in PowerPoint. And I, have, I just simply have no interest in that. Uh, my interests have shifted to high art and high science. And that's where the brains are, and that, that's where the, the cutting edge action is in both uh, visual, making visual things and also in doing, doing real science. Uh, the, the 
the thing that you were talking about is, uh, is sometimes remedied by people who haven't gotten beyond how to lie with statistics, is remedied by wanting you to show a zero point. No, you want to show more data horizontally instead of empty space vertically because more data horizontally means now you make comparisons all along and you can see that the, the, the strange bump was, is embedded in a whole series of, of changes and it's just cherry picking to show a piece of it. But the strength comes from showing more material horizontally rather than showing the zero point. Another way to put it is real scientists don't show the zero point, they show the data in immense amounts of it. That's one reason I invented spark lines, is to show incredible amounts of change going horizontally without a zero reference. So tell us a little bit more about spark lines. What are they and, and when did you come up with this idea? It turns out, I wrote it, uh, they're lurking quite strongly actually in my 1983 book where I have the shrink principle, which is to shrink things way down, and uh, preferably down that our statistical graphics should have the resolution of typography. And that is an enormous gain over the traditional graphics, maybe a 40-fold gain in resolution. And that means if they're like typography, they're small, like words, but they can be read because we can read typography, but it also means that the graphics can go anywhere a word or a number can go. That is, they can be in sentences, in cells, in spreadsheets, all over maps, and the like. Um, that has lots of developments since then, but it comes largely from the early principles about it's all about the content, uh, show only content, spend all your space on content, and then the shrink principle is intensify the resolution by shrinking things down. And all this came true practically. I, did, I printed the books, which is extreme paper, is extremely high resolution, and now these days the computer screen is caught up with paper. And so graphics that were impossible to show on computer screens that I wanted to show that I showed in my books because they're on paper are now easy to do and easy to show. And so you can get immense amounts of material within the common eye span rather than you know one, one slide after another. So we can look at documents rather than decks. And then uh, park lines were picked up very early by Google Analytics and then by Microsoft and Excel. And Microsoft did a, a really good job of it. And so the other day I was uh, ego surfing and I googled the word sparkline and there were 87 million returns. And so I thought that's really cool. <laughs> they're, you, no, they're used, they're, they're all over the place now. Um, and, and so that's, that's really nice that, uh, uh, that, that they are. Uh, I briefly thought about uh, patenting or licensing them and then I thought I don't do that sort of thing. Uh, I get my pleasure out of looking at the number of returns for the word spark lines and that people are using them. That's a great, uh, that's a great joy and it's uh, worth beyond, uh, you could never buy that joy, uh, I think. And that joy comes from pure data. 
Yes, the the things that well, they're like like you'd say it's pure words mm -hmm. when you read uh, read good typography. It's pure words, pure pure content, and so all the administrative debris and the decorative debris are are gone, and so viewers uh, don't have to figure anything out except the content. They don't have to figure out the interface or uh, plow through the decoration. I I think one of the things that interests me uh, about your work is how you used paper as a technology uh, to accomplish things that were you saw as as possible by computer and now that te technology exactly. has caught up with you I think that that is a, a fascinating use of technology and proof that paper and books are an amazing piece of technology well one reason I designed those myself was to uh, get the most intense uh, resolutions out of the paper by having very fancy printing, very expensive, uh, great care in the design, uh, very high resolution uh, displays to be scanned to then put in, uh, to put down on the paper, to make the plates to put down on the paper. And so I was pushing right from the start paper as hard as it would go. And because I'm looking for the future when, you know, it, it turned out in, in 25 years, the screens got good enough to carry the graphics that I talked about. I'm always trying to design forward. I'm not trying to, um, so much of the stuff on computers is uh, complicated, but it has to carry the baggage of previous releases and make low resolution things work because people still have low resolution this. Not me. Uh, I'm designing for the future and that was a very self-aware decision of really pushing the paper as hard as, pr as the best printing in the world could do. And then about 15 years ago, the printing process went from making films, which made plates, to directly taking the images and the type directly to the plate. And that meant that the, all those films were eliminated and you had much, a tremendous gain in resolution. So I can look at my books before and after uh, the improved printing and see an enormous difference. So they got this extra boost with the quality of printing on, on paper. And paper is still about the highest resolution display you can, you can get. Back in the days of the old Dell laptop, uh, that was about uh, 8 or 10% of the resolution of paper. And now a really good screen might be 60, 65% the resolution of paper. And that might be about good enough. Uh, uh, not always, but it's, it's getting, you know, it's getting uh, up to the standards I, I wanted in the 1980s. It strikes me that you have been a consummate user and crafter of book technology combining all the things that can go in a book to get the most out of a book. Not just pictures, not just words, but to trace the words and the pictures uh, against one another and to just really fill that technology to the brim. Well, my secret title for Beautiful Evidence, my uh, last book, uh, it was exactly that, the last book. I wanted to do something as extreme uh, as possible, 
exploiting the book technology as much as possibly could be done. And I really thought of it as that this, it, it wasn't, certainly wasn't my last book, but I thought of it as the last book uh, in, in, in it's, it's as far as you can go with paper and printing. Uh, and eventually the screens will be, uh, there's some real advantages of screens because the book, the light is reflected off the surface. With the screens, everything is backlit, and that makes an enormous difference. And so when I look at beautiful evidence on the screen, I find it just stunning. Um, I designed lots of stuff essentially th from the beginning through a five or a 10 power magnifying glass. So there are things now wow. <laughs> that when you get them a high resolution and enlarge them, um, you can still see. So in, I think it's in visual explanations, there is a, a, a joke which is only in the drawing that I sketched in, which is only visible in a five power glass. And so you can zoom in, a, a, like I checked it there on the computer and you can see it there on the screen. So uh, the, the books, uh, and also I designed for the double page spread, and you can get those on a big monitor at high resolution, they just glow. And frankly, the illustrations and the art uh, looks a lot better, especially when it's you know a good painting uh, or even a good graphic is backlit, uh, and that's that, that's uh, it's better than paper. Uh, the, essentially, the dot size is a lot smaller, but the backlighting just makes things glow. It may glow more than the original, but I don't have a problem with that. There's some beautiful paintings that look a little flat when you see them real, and on the screen they look magical, and that's just fine with me. Uh, I, uh, I want to see beautiful things, and it doesn't matter to me if that painting is really exactly original the way the artist wanted it a hundred years ago. I can see it, you know, just glow now. It's, it's like you were in a museum that had really good light, is another way to put it. I remember when I saw the Renoir in, in the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, mm -hmm. they, they glowed. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, what you were talking about. And it strikes me, have have you thought about creating an electronic book? Oh, using, uh, I mean, dealing with the technology? I've been constantly thinking about it for a long time because uh, I'm translating what ultimately will be six books into 15 or 20 languages. So that might be, a, you know, come out to be 100 books by the time I'm done. And we're preparing the translations from the paper, from the paper books, but the paper books are so carefully designed and with complete integration of graphical elements in the text, and I want to preserve that. So the translators, who are making both real books and electronic translations, in effect, are uh, required to translate by the page. And so if we're in Arabic, where the language expands, compared to English, then we just give them more space on that page so the words are still associated nicely with the images. But a lot of the translations will be distributed electronically because imagine having to print you know, 90 more books in all the countries of the world and shipping is so expensive. Um, still a lot of countries, in China for instance, they really want to see books in paper. But uh, where possible, uh, we would we might have to print them locally, but 
the electronic stuff is see it's, it has a universality to it, and so we're going to distribute them both ways, and initially mainly as electronic books, and my idea is that since this is a technical field, uh, the people who are reading an electronic book, even in another language, are probably reading a fair amount of English, you know, scientific research or uh, stuff that's in English. And so what I'd like to do actually is distribute the English language version of the book in paper and the electronic book in the other language along with that. So they would be seeing correspondences because a lot of scientific publication has to be in English now. And a lot of the world is in English now, thanks to the uh, to the internet, uh, uh, to the web, and so I'm trying to kind of combine that. So they have the hand and the markup capabilities and the fast search capabilities that you have in a book in English. So they'll get the sense in both languages and also learn the material or check up on the material to find the correspondences from the language. So that's a mixture then, this model, is a mixture of electronic books in one language and the paper book accompanying it in the other. Well, that is really fascinating. Uh, talk about, for you, as an artist and as a creator, the difference between the permanence of paper and the infinite and instant mutability of an electronic format. Well, you can lock electronic formats down and uh, I mean, you know, people can cut the pages out of your book, too. Um, it's a temptation with your books. I, I can see I'm buying not, two copies just to have yeah. one to frame. <laughs> um, I, 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 don't, I haven't really thought about that particularly, or I don't, maybe I'm not interested in that idea. They're both kind of cliches about things. I mean, the other cliche about the, about the web is that everything is forever. It never goes away. That's another cliche, mm -hmm. saying that it has essentially a huge time horizon. And then the other cliche, everything is instant, that means it has an extremely short time horizon. Well, maybe time horizons reside not in the technology, but in the viewer, and the mm -hmm. viewer's head, and, the, and their time horizon. And so their di very different time horizons can be accommodated by the viewer. And so we're not prisoners of a technology, and it's not you know somehow secretly changing us and manipulating us, or, or not too much anyway, uh, because we we are are individuals, and we can have different eyes. Um, I try very hard to have a, a long time horizon, and to wipe out short time horizons, and other people may have short time horizons, but uh, in other words. You could have any any damn experience you want on the screen, and the choice of the experience is the personal responsibility of the viewer, not of the screen. And so we want to mute the the parts of the screen that we that are not are contrary to our thinking. But I think there's a great deal. We're not prisoners of this. We we have we can we have a great deal of personal responsibility in how we see and think and behave in things we look at in a book or on a screen or most of all when we walk around outdoors. That's another model of information. 
is walking around in three space. And you could say, that's instant, but we have memory, we can take pictures. So there are all kinds of ways that we can accommodate our way through the limits or the defects of a particular technology of display. I, I think that uh, this, uh, in a sense, suggests something that you talk about in uh, visualizing evidence that um, this idea, and this is, I think, part of your course too, that any to before you create a, a display of information, that any um, good display is informed by good analysis. That by um, designing your analysis well, you will have a leg up on designing the ultimate output. Yes, because the quality of the analysis has a lot to do with the credibility and the truth value of the display. In the actual process, though, there's an interplay between, um, for me, and I think for other people showing uh, nonfiction, between a sketch of the design which reveals something about the information that you need to check up on. So this morning I was working on a on a display of medical data and then I realized that I didn't have uh, down at the bottom the source of the data and the person who did the display that I've now been working with. And so I went back and got that information and put a little you know, six-point type line giving the credit because the, the, that credit was, is exactly that. It helps the credibility of the display. So that was prompted by my working the material on the screen and by sketches and then to go back and bring some more information in. So it isn't a, a stage process. Um, the, the technical term for this process is called disjointed incrementalism, otherwise known as muddling through. <laughs> I'm a big fan of uh, Zeno's paradox. and I, I think that, that uh, that's the way I tend to work in terms of like, okay, I'm gonna get halfway there, get halfway more there. I might not ever get all the way there, but going back and forth, you'll figure out how to get there. That's the muddling through. Um, muddling through is a empirical description of, of human behavior and human thinking. The problem with math and logical paradoxes is they're in a very different domain of a, a rigorous logic which then leads to an empirically impossible result that is an infinite series that only exists it doesn't exist in for us we're very limited in time in in our in just our lives even and so i've never liked the the hard mathematical reasoning applied to um, thinking much about human behavior, even though 
Zeno's paradox is written in terms sometimes of human behavior or rabbits running or things like that, uh, the turtle and the rabbit and mm. that that model. But it it seems to me that's more for for logici- logicians rather than people living in a real world that is sloppy and where there's also uh, enormous um, ways to work around something. You know, you, you stop playing that game, uh, for, you know, and, and so on. So, again, we, we don't have to be... A, uh, those paradoxes have a, a false uh, discipline and, and often a, 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 fanta- a, a, a miracle conclusion, and I don't mean miracle in a good sense. <laughs> that is, I mean, it's, it's the opposite of, of empirical. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's talk about uh, John Snow's uh, analysis of, of color, which I thought was, your presentation of that was really interesting. And, and also, it's just really beautiful to see the way that you crafted them and put them together in the book, because there's there's two stories. There's the story that John Snow is, is telling with his graphics, but then there's the story you're telling about John Snow with his graphics. And so talk maybe about your way of exploring other people's stories using your talent for displaying their... Well, I don't like to go meta like that of uh, a story explaining a story. I don't think about that way. I, um, I have a wonderful... Uh, um, my secret is I, I begin with amazing examples. And usually the content is amazing, and the design is quietly amazing. It may be so good that it's invisible. And I want to bring out certain features of this often kind of low design or, th- or points I want to make. So it's... I'm I'm using the material because it's a wonderful story of 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 somebody out there in the field uh, saving lives, you know, diagnosing the epidemic, and you know, figuring out, and then telling, and then it's perfect. It tells the intervention, and that's a great example of thinking, which is that to make an intervention, that is to take the handle off the water pump requires, at an analytical level, causal and explanatory thinking. So that's all I wanted to kind of, that's the point I wanted to make, is an example of showing mechanism and causality, which leads then to an intervention that ends the epidemic. So I wasn't, um, I'm, I'm, first I celebrate the good examples, and in that celebration, I emphasize points that are relevant to my work, that they're present in that work, and that they're fairly naturally, they're inherently present. This is one reason I've spent so much time and written so much about Galileo, because he gets it right, he's doing something important, he has a tremendous eye, he's very bright-eyed and seeing, uh, 
and also I can, um, uh, 17th century science is something I can understand. <laughs> Unlike Feynman diagrams, which are, I, I play with those, but you know, that's some math beyond anybody but a second year graduate student in physics. You uh, mentioned earlier on about how um, creating uh, graphics that were dense enough to fit in as text with words, and that's something that uh, you show Galileo doing back way back when, which I think is it's a fascinating idea of being able to embed graphics as part of to read pictures. Yes, I'm writing about that at this um, at, in this very week uh, in my new book on uh, on graphical sentences two-dimensional sentences, words off the grid. And when you start looking for things embedded in sentences, um, especially graphics, uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there from Galileo, but from much earlier you find things in, in uh, uh, I was looking at uh, some things uh, from the Egyptian Middle Kingdom, which I must be 5,000 years ago, maybe 6,000, and they're showing um, stop-action uh, postures, positions of human beings, along with hieroglyphics, words explaining them, and it's a complete mix. And the reason it is, it, it works, or the reason it came about, is that both the images and the words came from a common source the hand of the Middle Egyptian writer-artist, or Leonardo's drawings are intensely integrated. So when the hand or the mode of production combined it was the same source of words and images like the human hand, then you had all kinds of stuff perfectly naturally integrated. We live in a very unnatural world on the graphical user interface because it violently segregates words and images and spreadsheets and mail and and pictures and everything else in what are called apps. We go into a special room through a special proprietary format that won't work in a year to draw <laughs> to type words. We go into a different proprietary format to draw a picture. And uh, Computers should be document-oriented, where you work with a document, not app and OS-oriented. And so here we have the main display device that, for economic reasons, strongly segregates uh, word and image and song and everything else. And we have to then, in our display, somehow recombine them. And we've wound up in this crazy situation where our, the information that we supply, uh, like medical information, our own vitals, to anything we create, the only way that we can view it on the screen is we have to have a certain release, a particular release of an operating system and a particular release of an app to see our own damn material. And that is extortion. It's terrifying, actually. I, for, for me, I, I I mean, I have old, I have twenty-year-old documents that are littered with PostScript commands to print them that are virtually unreadable at this point, and and so I, I think that 
Uh, I want to ask you, with technology, where do you want to reside or where do you work? Do you work with the trailing edge, which is stuff that we know works, that's kind of settled down? Or do you work with the absolute latest and greatest? Um, I do whatever it takes. And so in visual explanations to do the supercomputer animation of the cloud that I worked on, I was at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications. That was a long time ago. I spent some, several months there in the, several weeks there in the summer of, I believe, 93 or 94. And there I was at the cutting edge of scientific visualization. And they had the most amazing output. They would put out a piece of film of four by five, which probably is you know, 50 megabyte of information in a film. Film is incredibly high resolution of a still from the animation. And so I used those high resolution things in my book to scan them. So it didn't look like a murky video frame because they had this very fancy, it was a Sony, very fancy thing. The supercomputer had to do enormous amounts of computation to produce a four by five negative that we could scan. And I bet it was, it might have been more than 50 megabytes, that piece of film. Film is really high res because the silver crystals are so tiny. And so that at that time was cutting edge because I was there. Uh, and I'm interested in the cutting edge, but the problem is it's so contaminated by lies about fashion and the hot new thing. And if you stay on that cutting edge, within a few months it'll break your heart uh, because it's not really the cutting edge. And, and you also should think, isn't it a coincidence the best thing ever done was done this month? That could not be true. There have been thousands of months before where thousands of bright scientists have worked and thousands of bright people with bright eyes have worked. And so it would be an amazing coincidence that you know this month is somehow extra special. So it's a balance of being able to sort through the nonsense and the fashion and get something that's useful. Um, uh, I have never regretted staying with paper a long time because I needed the resolution. And I didn't prematurely go into digital uh, until it was now a stable, um, uh, useful format. When I worked with my hands on the books, it usually took me five years to do a book. And then in the modern books, when I've done things, you know, everything is digital, the books have taken me only seven years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a that technology is a big benefit. Um, I love the the chapter on explaining magic, mm. and I have to say that I, my first glance at that Cleveland cartoon that begins it, yeah. I looked at that twirling the water thing, and my first thought was, "Wow, you can do that!" Mm. <laughs> that's that's uh, is a it was an extraordinarily difficult chapter. I worked with a, a well-known ma magician as a co-author, Jamie Ian Swiss, and he taught me uh, a great deal 
about magic. He used to come uh, to my house, my studio, and we would work for, you know, he would stay with us and he would work for a week on the, on the chapter. And he would then entertain my staff by doing close-up magic tricks. Um, and, and some of them thought he might, he kind of looked satanic, and some of them thought he might be satanic because that, that coin uh, you know, disappeared. He, he made the coin go through the table. But it was extremely difficult. We're both uh, uh, smart and strong-minded, but we banged it out. It was good. We really wor worked on that chapter. And there were two big ideas that were unusual. One was to look at magic as a presentation method. And magicians think constantly about the presentation. So when they pass a ball from one hand to the other, they care whether it's that ball is in front of a white shirt or whether it passes in front of a black jacket. They're that detailed. And it is constant rehearsal. And good magicians are like good, good, uh, good magicians are like good musicians, where they you know practice the piano you know three or three hours a day. They rehearse in front of a mirror constantly. And so I was very interested in their the craft of making a presentation and borrowing that then for technical presentations. And one of the things I got from that from magicians was finish early. Always leave them wanting more. And that's what you do in magic, and that's what I believe very strongly in it. The other part was to reverse magic and to look at it as disinformation design, and then we could see how they were creating disinformation, and then use that, that knowledge, to see, to identify disinformation in other parts of the world. So it was my kind of fresh eyes in looking at a field that's been around, you know, thousands of thousand years or so. And oh, and then also magic books were wonderfully illustrated. Mm. They had very good uh, stop action photographs, but they had particularly good explanatory drawings that showed stop action position, but then dotted lines and things and, and showing the, the hidden coin in the hand with dotted things. And so one image in that is a still, uh, the drawing, but I found that there were eight layers of depth in that one little illustration. So there was a, a coin and an envelope. So you have the one side of the envelope, you have the coin, you have the other side of the envelope. It was being held by a magician. You had that against the background, and there were turned out to be eight layers, plus the dotted line explanatory layer. And so there were wonderful diagrams of complex behavior in three space and time brought to Flatland. And then I could analyze them. How do they, how do they explain something that is intensely in three dimensions in time with conceal and reveal? And so it was, there were wonderful examples for information design to diagnose and analyze and see what the, they were quite skilled artists, uh, uh, you know, drawing the hand, and, the coin and all of that. And so I had a huge collection of magic books that I searched over and over for their visualizations. And so that was another part of borrowing from this from the literature of magic, which is kind of a semi-secret kind of literature in a way. 
One of the things that you say is that in this chapter is this idea of making verbs visible. I think that's a really interesting idea. Talk about how and why we make verbs visible. Uh, first, um, it's all about verbs. Richard Feynman has a wonderful piece of video where he talks about how he learned the, the name, uh, he learned to recognize a bird, and he learned the name. Then uh, his father explained to him that you could know the name of that bird and be able to recognize it, and you could know the name in 10 languages, and then Feynman names the bird in 10 different languages, sounding beautiful. And then his father said, you could have it in 10 languages and you know nothing at all. What matters is what verbs do. And it matters in drawing, not what things are named, but what things do. And it's all, it matters everywhere. That it's, it's all about the verbs. It's not about proper nouns. And, and that proper noun exists in you know, maybe up to 3,000 languages. But the verb exists in the world. It is universal. In other words, that gesture can be seen, any gesture, any painting, any drawing can be seen by anybody in the world for its visual content. So that is the images and the seeing and the verbs are what are universal. And that's where the action is. And so that then suggests that you want to be where the action is in your design, and so you want to make verbs visible. You want to use a lot of verbs and, and stay away from proper nouns. A big career change I made was I was a, a pretty good uh, political economist. I did lots of, of uh, quantitative work, and I, got, uh, I became a full professor at Princeton and Yale, and at a young age, doing political economy and statistics. And I was writing about uh, post-World War II political economy from essentially 1945 into the mid-80s. I was writing ab about that. And then I realized that this was not forever knowledge. The phrase, President Gerald Ford, is not exactly forever knowledge. It's not like science. The phrase President Jimmy Carter, the phrase President Ronald Reagan, those are proper nouns. They are not forever knowledge. They are not about verbs that are part of, they're not about nature's laws. They're not about, the, the, the human behavior like that is we're just little bugs on a tiny planet. For nature's laws and what real science does, is they know that everything that they see and measure and think about is a product of the universal laws of nature forever. And in thinking about human behavior, we have a pile of proper nouns, and analyzing human behavior is extremely difficult because we don't have nature's laws. Uh, and we don't have the verbs of equations and, and the verbs of nature's laws. Consequently, human, the study of human beings isn't rocket science. It's harder than rocket science. 
because it's entangled in nouns and because we're just a little bug on a little planet and we don't have the universal laws of nature. And so that leads then, if the thinking task is to understand verbs, then the design recipe is show a lot of verbs and action and behavior and change, not a lot of proper nouns in boxes on an organization chart. Well, that's fascinating. And I think that gets to me one of the things that uh, about your work is that you managed to make at a high and I think to you and intuitive level a connection between the finest of art and the hardest of science which are often seen as being at odds with one another so talk about how you reconcile that in terms of creating the data creating the picture uh, first, I never think about disciplines or boundaries. When I was a child, from, from, from then on, I always wanted to be a professor, but I still haven't figured out a professor of what. <laughs> and so one is I, I don't make distinctions between art and science or anything. It's not because they're alike, but I don't view it as somehow you know, separate domains. What science and art have in common, what great art and great science has in common is intense seeing. Everybody in those fields performing at a high level has to really see intensely. There is also in both of those fields an intense empiricism that the evidence of the eye is what decides. It's not logical theory, it's not the church, it's the evidence of the eye. And that is true in science and it is true in art. The talents of real science compared with the talents of art may be orthogonal. That is mean they don't have much in common. But the, some of the processes and the thinking uh, have a great deal in common. And then the early people and the Renaissance people, they, they were doing both. You think of Leonardo and you think of Galileo. Galileo was a great illustrator. He did some wonderful paintings of the craters on the moon that he discovered. Wonderful illustrations, line and tone illustrations. Um, so the other part is the intense scene in sculpture and the intense scene in science is pretty close to the same because the sculptures are not flats, they're not paintings, they reside in a living changing world and so you're automatically with sculpture in three dimensions and time, and that's what you are in real science. And so you're, and you're trying to see in sense, uh, intensely. What real science does better is we only see a very narrow bandwidth of scale and also of light, where real science sees hugely different scales, maybe 50 orders of magnitude, and at maybe a hundred more, a million times more um, uh, is visible, so to speak, can be seen. The, the rays in the world can be seen in nature, can be seen unlike the narrow band of human resolution of light and color. So they're just seen a whole lot more. And so you can, uh, a scientist can look at the sculpture and kind of appreciate it, but they can also think about the metal and the crystals of the metal and how the the light bends through it and how it bends off of air and how it, you know, and how the photons are going. 
and, and so there's some more depth. That isn't relevant, though, to what the sculptor's thinking about. They're thinking about the, or not very relevant, they're thinking about, though, the behavior of the piece in three, for three space and time. So there's a lot more commonality with sculpture to science than there is to, because it's of the world, than it is to flats. Us sculptors call anything possible flat. So books, screens, engravings, paintings uh, uh, are all in one big box called flats. I was once at, at Storm King, which is an incredibly good sculpture, outdoor sculpture garden, talking to the, the uh, wonderful curator there and director. And uh, earlier I had seen some uh, paintings working drawings of David Smith, who's a great sculptor. And I, I saw and they weren't there anymore. And I said, how come David Smith's flats aren't there? Or I didn't say flats, but his, his paintings aren't there. And the, the sculptor museum director said, we don't do flats. And so <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> sculptors are usually seen as uh, 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 you know, sort of uh, uh, rough and ready uh, and unrefined people, unlike the sophisticated uh, painters who paint illusionary things mainly um, because they don't have three space. And, um, but I think the seen things are mu far more interesting in the real world than, the, of course they are, than they are looking at uh, that, any kind of flat. And that's one reason I, I, I do and love sculpture so much is that the so in Flatland, the negative space is very easy to define and show and talk about, and uh, even uh, even school children can understand negative space and positive space. For sculpture, it's airspace, and when I work with my colleagues, we mostly talk about the air, not about the steel or the stone, and what what is happening, how we're shaping the air. And that air shape is different from every point of view on every day, depending on the light and where you're standing, and you know and all the things that happen happen outdoors. So there's some connection between my analytical work and sculpture. Uh, but I have about seven stories about that relationship, and they're all after the fact stories. I just I fundamentally just go to the studio every day and try to make something. This explains 200 plus acres of sculpture garden. Talk about the decision to do that and you know your thoughts about populating that. That's a big space. When I was 24, on the day I finished my PhD dissertation, I started making consciously paintings. It turned out I had been making them since I was six. six. My mother sent me some I did when I had a mechanical drawing set at age six, but at age 24, I started making them. Uh, quite, they're quite naive. They were line and tone, so black outline. And I didn't recognize their symbolic value then, their obvious grotesque symbolism, which is they were balloons floating free in the sky with a kind of wavy string dangling from them, as if I was free of something. I didn't recognize that, but I started doing those. And then I started t taking painting more seriously. And my roommate in graduate school, uh, his uh, a friend, uh, 
knew David Smith up in uh, upstate New York. And so pretty early on, she got me to David, access to David Smith's uh, studio uh, about a, within a year of his death. He, designed, he died quite early in an accident. And so I got to see David Smith's sculpture, and he's an incredible sculptor, and also got to walk around his studio. And that was very powerful, and, <coughs> and that was very powerful and very uh, moving for me. And then he had a show at the Guggenheim, and um, where I got to see the, the smaller pieces, and that was a famous show, and that just blew me away. I was still teaching in Princeton, and I started. Uh, I had a house that I rented from the university, which had about a half an acre. And I started making concrete sculptures. I would pour concrete and place forms in them to make different kinds of holes, transparencies, air spaces through the concrete. So now I'm in three space, just, and I didn't have any particular motivation. I just made things. And even in the early years when I, I, I didn't have tenure, I was spending a couple of days a week making art as an assistant professor of public policy. <laughs> and um, I, just, I just did what I did. Um, I guess I was pretty confident that the tenure thing would work out, and it did very early, but I, I just did it. And I had, uh, I occasionally give them away to friends, but it was, some of the stuff has a kind of elementary uh, charm uh, uh, and, and kind of imitative of Vasarelli and op optical art. And then when I came to, I moved to Yale, and now I had uh, six or eight acres with the house, so I built a studio and started really being serious and have some people help me. And then I decided I wanted to have a lot more space and have a dedicated sculpture farm, and I was unable to do that in in uh, uh, in the town I, Cheshire, the town near Yale, and so I was on a trip out uh, getting some stone in, in uh, Tennessee. And uh, it was about two, mile, uh, two hours away from Nashville to the stone quarry to get some kind of soft stone that I wanted for kitchen countertops, actually. And as I was driving along, I saw all these rolling hills, mostly walked, uh, wiped out by uh, Georgia Pacific forest cutting. But I saw these wonderful rolling hills, and I thought, wouldn't it be nice to show sculpture there? And I talked that day to a real estate broker, and I found I could get a 980-acre mountain with petroglyphs inside of caves. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I came home to my staff in Connecticut. They were horrified about the possibility of going to a state that was on the wrong side in the Civil War. It was a slave state, among other things. Horrified. We're, you know, we're, we're from Connecticut, very different. And so my helper for all these years went out immediately and drove about an hour to the north to Litchfield County, which is way, uh, mainly farms, and looked around and a, bro a broker then took me or uh, took us around and we found this piece of land 
and it has a three-quarter mile dirt road up a driveway and I almost bought it before I got up to the land. I was just, I, I always wanted something with a long road, dirt road up a long driveway, up a big hill. And it was a mesa, it was flat on the top. And so that was now about 12 years ago. And I bought that big piece of land and I bought two more pieces to make 234 acres. And I've been building, I built two million pounds of stone pieces with backhoes and stuff and a lot of stainless steel and it's become um, a great big deal in my life. And I start, I show, I'm now showing in real places. That's the, how you tell an amateur from a serious artist is that they show, they exhibit. And I exhibit a lot and uh, it's a fairly good success. And uh, it's hard to sell these pieces. Uh, they're big. Uh, I had my own gallery in Chelsea and my own studio. I, I, uh, uh, my pieces were too big for anybody's apartment. And also landscape sculptures are very difficult. There's no, there's no market. Richard Serra, uh, the best of all sculptors, uh, uh, said that the market for big outdoor landscape sculpture is like the market for Canadian experimental poetry. <laughs> and, but I don't have to worry about the market. Uh, my my books and my courses have been very successful, so I I don't have to be in a production mode of making 20 things that are the same for 20 different clients. So it's just what I want to do. And I have a foundation, or there are a couple of trusts that will get all that land and all that art, and uh, I'm trying to find endowment for that foundation, and. And I want the plan is to leave that land and the sculptures, leave it as open space in perpetuity, uh, that will show the work of uh, um, one artist, my stuff. And so that's the kind of long run master plan, is to, uh, to have everything, uh, all the sculpture work, uh, there. I have no interest in leaving behind uh, my, you know, library or working papers, um, um, my work is in the books and that's what I want to leave behind there. But I do want to leave, uh, I think, I wish I could move it to Norway or Sweden now, but I do, do, uh, uh, I do want to leave behind uh, somehow uh, my, uh, my art and the, in the open space um, um, in perpetuity. I've been speaking with Edward Tufte He's the author of Beautiful Evidence, The Visual Display of Quantitative Information, Envisioning Information, and Visual Explanations. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Tufty. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.